It's probably the closest thing to Hogwarts that actually exists in real life. <laughs> Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Greetings! Hi! Hello! Welcome back to the podcast that doesn't find hyenas to be a laughing matter, the Rossafari Podcast. Y'all, it has been snowing so much lately where I live. It is crazy. Fortunately, the condo complex where Zoe and I are at does a really good job of clearing the streets and walkways and salting everything down before the ice can freeze. Of course, this also means that it's easy to let your guard down, which is exactly what happened to me last night. So, our microwave recently stopped working, and I decided to be the hero and go buy a new one. As I was walking up to the door with a brand new appliance in hand, I hit the smallest patch of black ice, and I went flying. I crashed down hard on my right knee. And the microwave somehow managed to not just drop out of my hands, but catch my momentum and actually fly into the air over my head before crashing down onto the ground. It was so loud that my neighbor came running out to see if I was okay. I don't think he saw the microwave box, so I think he thought it was just me hitting the ground that made such a loud crashing noise. Anyway, the good news is that I'm okay. My knee's pretty cut up and the microwave is dented, but otherwise it works fine. I I like to think of the dent as nothing more than a unique customization that makes our microwave uniquely our own. And and don't worry, this isn't going to be some moralistic story where I point out that the way I view the dents in my microwave is how we should all view our unique bruises or whatever. I just thought y'all would enjoy starting this episode by having a good laugh at my expense. Lord knows I've been laughing at myself since it happened. And limping. A lot. All right, y'all know the drill by now. Patreon.com slash Rossafari to support the pod and get some cool stuff in return. At Rossafari on Instagram and Facebook for daily zoo pics and so much more. And Rossafari.com is the website for the pod. If you have any show suggestions or want to make fun of me for falling on the ice, you can message me on Instagram or Facebook or email me at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Today, I am bringing you my interview with Holly Schmidt, who is a second-year student at America's Teaching Zoo. Yep, you heard that right. America's Teaching Zoo is an actual zoo at an actual college where students get to earn a degree in exotic animal training and management while being actual zookeepers at an actual zoo that is open to the public but is part of the school. This whole idea just blows my mind, and Holly does a great job breaking down how the program works and what life is like for students attending the program, known as EDEM. On top of that, Holly is just a really cool person. We get into her plans for post-graduation, and they are not what I expected. And you can just tell, Holly is the type of person who sets a goal and then just makes it happen. I'm excited for you all to hear what she is planning on doing and how she will make her mark on the world. 
Oh, one quick note about language in this episode. Uh, there are no bad words or anything inappropriate at all, but I'm pretty sure I used the slang term bomb in this interview. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I am so very sorry for being such a huge dork. <laughs> so, without further ado, here is my interview with Holly Schmidt of America's Teaching Zoo. All right, so tell me who you are, and uh, we're going to say this a little differently today, why we're talking to each other. Awesome. So, uh, my name is Holly Schmidt. I am a student at America's Teaching Zoo in the Exotic Animal and Training and Management Program. It is a program through Moore Park Community College um, that is kind of like a trade school. It's so different from the rest of the school, and yet it is still kind of this tangent of a community college, which presents some pretty interesting challenges. Um, all of that said, I have a background in um, child development psychology, as well as a little bit of political science. I um, did go to school for something other than animal care before this, after being kind of led away from my passion by various counselors and things who said, oh, you know, animal jobs don't make that money. There's not that many to go around. So I'm very pleased to be where I am now after a little bit of soul searching, after some more traditional academic style education to have come right back to my passion for animals and conservation. And uh, I wouldn't change that journey for anything because now I know I'm here for the right reasons. Nice. That's awesome. So tell me um, where you were at in your, your non-animal journey when you realized you had to go back and, and how you realized that. How I realized was the program had come to my attention during a junior year high school, which for me was 2008. I was in a college preparatory program that gave us the opportunity to do a very in-depth career project. And I, through um, a former co-worker of my mom, knew a keeper at the zoo, or actually someone in the HR department who knew a keeper, I did an interview and um, this keeper told me that they went to Edom, that they went to America's Teaching Zoo. And I kind of just bookmarked that, um, went to school, became a biology major, was never really great at the hard sciences. So put that dream on the back burner again at the advice of kind of counselors and things that said, hey, you know, you're not really that great at the hard science, so this might not be for you. So uh, at that time, I was working service industry, which was a great moneymaker um, until graduation. And then I graduated. I did some entry-level psychology type jobs and realized that an office really wasn't for me. So I went back to the service industry, um, had the pleasure and the privilege of working my way up to a job that I only worked weekends. And I said, you know what, it's finally time. I don't want to get kind of trapped in this revolving door of working in one bar and then one restaurant. And um, before you know it, 10 years goes by and I never did that thing that I wanted to do growing up. So um, I took that as a blessing that I could work and continue to pay my bills and start to pursue this education at the same time. And I applied to Edom. Nice. Very, very cool. Um, and so the actual, uh, the actual program is a college program at a college that also has a zoo. Yes. That and we're not talking true. just frat houses. We're talking an actual zoo with, with animals. <laughs> an, an actual zoo, not like, um, what's that movie? 
Animal, Animal House. house yes. <laughs> but that does, I can see how that would <laughs> mesh into seeming like what um, Edom is, but it's not that at all. It's a community college, no fraternities involved. Um, though I can see how being with the same hundred or so people every day might translate into something similar. But um, the zoo is on the campus, but just a li- just separated enough that it can be easy to forget about. Um, it's five acres up on the hilltop of Moore Park, California, very small, I think only like 20,000 person town. Um, and the program is a two-year program as well, just like you would get, you know, an associates in any other field, but at the end, your associates is in exotic animal training and management. Uh, so this little zoo kind of hides away from the rest of the campus, but we have the pleasure of doing things like campus walks where we bring the animals down there and kind of spread the awareness <laughs> of the program. Nice. And students of the college get into the zoo for free when we are open to the public on the weekends. So it's a nice little um, collaborative system there where we can bring awareness to our little program and also serve the community of Moore Park. Yeah, that's really, really cool. And I, I love that you're open to the public. That was actually going to be my next question. So on weekends, you, you're a functioning zoo. We are a functioning zoo on weekends. During the week, there are classes and things. So that's why we just focus our attention on learning how to be real life zookeepers that interact with people on weekends. Of course, with um, this past year being a little different, we were closed for a little while, but great news at the time of us talking right now on February 5th, we are actually one day away from reopening. So tomorrow, February the 6th, we are reopening to the public again, just in time for our African male lion's birthday, Ira, he's going to turn seven. Amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. Very excited for the reopening. That's awesome. And I, 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 I'm not going to lie and we're going to get there in a little bit, but, um, a lion, I'm surprised. I would not have guessed that a, a school zoo would have a lion. I was expecting like, you know, meerkats and, and porcupines and, and, you know, maybe a squirrel. We have quite a few large carnivores. If you said we'll get there later, I'll hold off on that. But, uh, very exciting. Sounds good. Sounds good. That's really, really cool. So let's talk, because I'm just fascinated by the idea of zookeeper school. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm curious. So most people who get into the field have some form of biology degree or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and you're, But they don't get a lot of hands-on or keeping training. So what kind of coursework do you do? Do you have like lion training 101 and, and, and such? How does this work? Yeah, sort of. So The first year, it's a two-year program, 22 months, and as with zookeeping, animals don't take a day off, so we don't either. There's It's probably the only school, maybe in the world at least, that I know of where there's students every single day of the year, weekends, holidays, summer, winter, fall, all the semesters, there's always some students there, which creates such a unique experience. So for 22 months, you're in the program starting in August, ending in the following May. Um, I'll be graduating this May of 2021, not to digress. Congrats, congrats. um, that's awesome. Thanks. Uh, The the first year is a lot more classwork, kind of paying your dues. You've got to get the grades. You've got to learn about the species that you will be taking care of in your second year. And then as your second years begin to prepare for graduation, you request the animals that you would like to work with, and they're assigned to you based on those requests as well as your grades and some other things. Uh, like volunteer hours, it's on a point system. So then you get assigned your animals and then there's still coursework, but it becomes a lot more focused on the animals. And that's when the training comes in. So it's not lion training 101, (laughs) but we do have courses called training, training one, training two, training three. 
And there is the lecture element, which involves a lot of learning about operant conditioning. We use exclusively positive reinforcement training. So we learn a lot about how to do that, how to basically communicate with our animals using the reinforcers as a sort of language. Um, and then the lab portion is where we put that into practice with the animals that we've been assigned. And everyone throughout the course of the program will train a bird, an herbivore, a primate, and a carnivore. This, this might be the coolest thing I've ever heard of. It's I'm, probably the closest thing to Hogwarts that actually exists in real life. <laughs> I am strongly considering dropping everything in my life and just, just coming there and doing this now. This is incredible. This is so cool. So, yeah, I support it. <laughs> so, well, obviously. So you're going to get done in May mm -hmm. and you're going to have this bomb resume saying that you've done all this stuff as you go into this insanely competitive field of zookeeper. That's That's the hope. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> Awesome. Oh, man. I I like this so much. Um, I was really excited. So the way that I, because I, I never heard of this place. And the way that I, I discovered this was, um, I'm a big fan of when Instagram like suggests people, I, I check them mm -hmm. out. And one day it suggested you and three of your classmates, like boom, 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 boom. And as I clicked on all the profiles to make sure you guys were keepers and that I wasn't going to be some weird creepy dude just being like, <laughs> hi, notice me. Um, all four of you are from America's Teaching Zoo. And I was like, you have my attention. And so I did a little bit nice. of research. But as soon as I saw what it was, I was like, I, I need to hear about this. And I need to be educated on this from, from people that are there. So uh, this, is, this is very cool. I'm very excited. It is. I am too. It's extremely unique. I'm so grateful to have found out about it the way that I did. And it is very competitive and has been around for a long time. I believe the first graduating class was 1974. So there are wow. alumni all around the world that are part of this little network of people that are really passionate about animals. And not, of course, you don't have to go through this program, but it's still just a unique little unifying item. You know, you drop your resume somewhere and someone says, hey, Eda, me too. What year did you graduate? And you end up a part of this whole this whole network of people that share a love for this little compound in the middle of a small town in Moore Park. And we have the same memories and can talk about how it's changed over time. Oh, when I was here, the back road was all dirt. Oh, well, when I was here, Hoofstock <laughs> area was just one big corral with a water buffalo in it. You know, so things change, but the, the space in space is the same. The space in the world is um, you know, kind of harboring, I feel, all, all that love and passion from all of these students for generations now. That's so cool. I do have one question. Yeah. Um, it's Moore Park College, and mm -hmm. it's America's Teaching Zoo, and you keep calling it EDOM, and I'm pretty good with acronyms, but those aren't lining up for me. What does EDOM mean? Ah, uh, yes. Okay, so EDOM, ATZ, America's Teaching Zoo, is the name of the zoo. Exotic Animal Training and Management is the name of the program, the program. curriculum. Okay. So when yes. you go on and register for your classes, you know how a lot of places will say like ANSC for animal science or ROSA EDOM because it's part of that program. It's like the major, I guess you could say. Sure. Okay. That makes yeah. so much more sense. Every time yeah. you said EDOM, I'm sitting here and I'm like, there's a Z in the name. No, what? I can't. More yeah, that would have been, yeah. been a good preface. There's the location. <laughs> the zoo has its own name, America's Teaching Zoo, and then the, the program is called EDOM. Very cool. So um, tell me about your professors. Are, are they zookeepers? I mean, obviously, they're working with the animals there. But how do you become a professor in this program? So they come from a very 
diverse array of backgrounds. Many, but not all of them, are graduates of the program themselves from various years. Um, one of the main, I don't know how you quantify it, one of the main professors there, his name is Gary Wilson. He's been there um, for a long time now. He himself went through the program. He came from a um, Navy Marine mammal training background. So he has so much insight. He's our training professor, uh, which is why he also teaches animal diversity, which is the class you take in first year. That is very difficult. You have to memorize all the scientific names, spelling counts, and he'll show you slides (laughs) of the animal, and he makes it confusing on purpose. You know, he'll show like a red tail and a red-shouldered hawk from underneath, and you have to name which one it is based on the barring, on the feathers. So um, there is a lot of coursework involved, referring to your earlier question, but um, that is his background. He's very much into the training, but then we have another, um, Brenda Woodhouse, who did a lot of zookeeping. So we get experience from all different realms of animal care. Um, Another one of our staff members there is Gary Moy, who did studio work. So pretty much anywhere that you can go in the animal field, we have a representative on our staff that can tell us more about how to get into that part of the field. Very cool. Very cool. All right. That's, that's awesome. And I am just super excited about all of this, but um, I want to get into some of the animals now. So the first question about animals is what did you get your highest grade in? My highest grade? Um, Actually, last semester, I did pretty well on a retrieve behavior or like a drop it behavior with an Abyssinian ground hornbill, uh, which at the time of requesting him, um, I was still very green in the animal field and have since learned that even diehard bird people don't really mess with hornbills. They're kind of the the taboo (laughs) family of the bird world because they can be so... um, volatile for lack of a better word but I'm so glad that I was naive to that fact at the time because I would not change anything as far as my relationship with this bird but um I got a 90% on my training final with him so uh he did pretty well he dropped the stick and he went in the crate so everything was good (laughs) (laughs) what uh what's his name his name is Beaker Beaker, that's adorable. I love yeah. hornbills; they're really great. Hornbills Me and corvids, too. though, are supposedly really hard to train. So uh, good for you. Yeah, corvids are very intelligent. Funny because my second choice was a corvid, a raven. Um, <laughs> All right, but I got Beaker. <laughs> nice, nice. If you look the the animal art right at the top here, I, mm-hmm. is uh, is uh, Russell Crow from Southwick Zoo, a a crow. So yeah, what a great I like name. <laughs> So um, tell me more about the, the animals in general. What, what, what's your zoo like? Yeah, so we have over 100 different species. Uh, the zoo has everything from Madagascan hissing cockroaches to two full-grown African lions. And we have tigers. Uh, just got a new hyena that I'm assigned to. I'd love to tell you more about him later. Um, Various reptiles. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're stopping right now. Okay, I am derailing this right now. Tell me about your hyena. Yeah, um, he's new, and he's fantastic. New new to us. Um, He had a little bit of history in studio work, um, and now he is retired. So he's on the older end. He's a 24-year-old hyena with some vision impairment, um, and that's been a really fun experience to train with him 
because it it's been teaching me how to work with animals who have some sort of sensory loss, which is very common because in the zoo world, animals live far beyond what they would in the wild. So then we have other challenges to work with how to keep them enriched, even as their bodies change over time. So um, we also are completely protected contact, which means there's always a locked barrier between us and the carnivore. Um, And that's true for all of our large carnivores, just because mostly because we're a school, but also because that's kind of where the field is heading in general um, for the safety of the keepers and um, the understanding of the public that these animals are not pets and that the ones that are in human care are the exception to the rule um, as far as interaction. So we stick to protected contact um, and he's been the first animal I've been on that's been entirely protected contact. So that has helped me learn a whole new way to train because um, when I first started the program, I said, how could you possibly, you know, mostly thinking about elephants, because I've always been really interested in elephants, which are entirely protected contact now, well, for the most part. Um, it's like, how do you do that? How do you train an animal if you can't be in the same space? But it turns out it's very possible and a very great skill that we learn, um, especially when working with objectively dangerous animals like large carnivores. So That's really cool. How do you feel about it personally, though, as far as building a relationship through protected contact versus uh, free contact? Good question. So I do feel that my relationship is stronger with my free contact animals. Um, That could be for a lot of factors, like part of the program. Some animals are semester long where you have them just for one semester and then you turn them over to another student and some are year long. So the hornbill, for example, is a year long animal. So I've been building a relationship with him since last March. Um, Same is true for my other year long animals, but I do have a year long primate that's entirely protected contact and comparing those two, even though it's very hard to compare a primate and a bird uh, in this respect, my relationship is definitely stronger with the free contact. Uh, that okay. could be from my own lack of expertise, though. Oh, no, well. I, I I wouldn't look at it that way. I mean, I, I think so. I've interviewed numerous elephant keepers and others. Mm-hmm. And um, whether or not, you know, you there's a lot of debate about, especially with elephants, free and, and protected contact. Um, most of them seem to appreciate that the AZA is looking out for them while also wishing they were still uh free contact. But I don't think I've talked to anybody who says that they actually feel you can develop a better relationship through protected. Um, Now, you can still develop a really good, really healthy relationship. And uh, some of the keepers I've talked to, especially uh, large primate keepers, will tell you it's it's incredibly uh, good relationships. But it's still different than being hands-on or, you know, right there in the same space. I think I think that's true of everything. I think that's true of humans that do long-distance relationships. It's hard. Yeah. I think it's true, you know, for anyone, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, that makes sense. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. I think that the key is to balance the relationship with keeping both you and the animals safe because, you know, it's important that the animals feel safe and, and secure as well. So I don't think that's bad. Yeah, I agree. I guess some animal-human relationships aren't meant to be as strong in the way that we define it as people because, you know, just like with humans, we have friendships and we have working relationships and they're both really healthy and they're both really necessary. And so some animals we may, you know, like protected contact animals may be more of a professional relationship. Um, I guess it's depending on the goal of that animal and that keeper for the animal's well-being. Um, Like I know with a lot of the 
a lot of birds of prey, it's actually in their best interest to do entirely remote feeding so that they're not associating um, their keeper with food, and that can reduce things like aggression. So um, in that sense, it can serve the relationship ultimately to be more hands-off. So I think it's all about what the, what the parameters, parameters are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, um, man, that's, that's really exciting that you're working with this, uh, this new animal, though. That's very cool. You seem so excited. I can see your little face. You get all scrunched up when you talk about it. It's so funny. I love that. I am. This is the childhood dream. You know, how many people in life get to say they, they did it. And I'm grateful for that every day. It's very cool. Um, do you live in that area, by the way? I actually do not. I'm one of the few that commutes. So I live in the East Hollywood area, but most of the students do live close by. How long of a commute is that for you? Uh, about 45 minutes. It's usually really early in the morning that I'm going in, so I'm not competing with the rest of the traffic of the area. So I get there. Yeah, LA can get nuts. That's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Very cool. I uh, I get out to LA a couple times a year usually when it's not COVID. I'll have to come check this yeah. place out. Yeah, you very really cool. should. Yeah, love it. All right. So tell me about your lions. Our lions. So we have a um, female lioness and uh, the African male as well, who is about to turn seven. And then Kiara is, the female is 22 or 23. Um, So they are very different. It's been really interesting to see how a kind of just maturing, just coming into his full adulthood lion is versus the other end of the spectrum um he actually ira is his name he recently moved to a brand new beautiful enclosure which is part of what we're celebrating tomorrow for his birthday um it's kind of the big reveal because he moved to that enclosure while uh, we were closed so now all of the community the whole neighborhood that loves the zoo and you know a lot of the neighbors that hear him roaring get to come and see his brand new big home. So that's very exciting. Um, yeah, he's, he's kind of our mascot. We wear him on our, on our uniform. So you know, everyone loves <laughs> nice. the lion. It's a recognizable animal. Um, and that's what a lot of the kids want to see. So uh, he's become our mascot. Very cool. And yeah. what, um, what's it like to work with a lion as a student? I'm just, I'm blown away by all of this. Yeah. I've, never been a trainer on him directly. Um, but I have gotten to do a little bit of interaction. No matter who you're a trainer on, you're going to clean everybody. So um, as a first year, you're rotating through the different areas every week to kind of get a feel for what type of animals or what area you are most interested in. So um, there's the carnivore area, which is where all the large carns are. And um, I knew pretty immediately that that wasn't where I would end up wanting to be a lead, which is where in your second year you um, get a lead position in one of those areas. So you rotate through and then you choose which one you like and that's where you are in your second year. And that's where you're cleaning and that's where you're um, doing all that. So I've mostly just done cleaning with the lions. Um, I did over the quarantine, uh, right when the pandemic was kind of starting and everything was a little wild, my class had the very interesting and unprecedented experience of running the entire zoo with just 11 people in order to be as safe as we could, um, but still allow students on the ground. So during that time, I did have the opportunity of working a lot more closely with the lioness. Um, and I got to do some 
bedrooming, which is like a creating behavior with her and um, feeding her bottles of blood, <laughs> which might not sound really great to the audience, but um, for a lion, it's great. It gives them all the nutrients that they that they need that they don't otherwise get. So bottle feeding a lioness was quite a highlight despite the strange times. <laughs> That's insane. Okay. So do you just do that through the bars or how, how do yeah. you bottle feed a lion? Oh my goodness. That's so yeah, cool. The, the enclosures are, you know, wide enough that, um, that you can pretty easily do that and you feed through, but yeah, still that protected contact. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> picturing bottle feeding a lioness and I, I, I need a minute to recover here. <laughs> that is really, really special. Pretty incredible experience. Her trainers get to do it very often. And um, she's also, she's very advanced in her husbandry training, which is basically like when an animal is trained to cooperate in their own care. So she has like a voluntary blood draw and that, that type of thing. So that, because um, anytime you have to do a workup on an animal or put them under anesthesia, it can be very dangerous for them, especially as they get older. So, um, husbandry training using all positive reinforcement is really great for the animal because it minimizes how often, if at all, they need to be put under anesthesia. So she's a really great example of this. She accepts things like fluids and blood draws and things that are necessary for her health entirely voluntarily. So it's pretty That's amazing. awesome. <laughs> so what area are you a lead in? I am a lead in the hoofstock area. Uh, so that is where we have donkeys, sheep, mini horses. Um, right now, the llama that I'm assigned to is on a temporary stay there as her enclosure in her other uh, area gets a little revamping. So it's been fun to have her there while I'm in area, which is what we call the cleaning in the morning. You're, you're going to area. Um, it's kind of like in a zoo. They would call it a string, most likely, but for us, it's just called area. But yeah, I'm, I'm in Hoofstock. Uh, I chose it because a lot of people have some type of equid experience already as they're entering the program. You know, they rode horses as a kid or um, went to the farm. You know, that's a little more common of an animal to have interactions with, but I lacked that and I know that they are everywhere. So I really wanted to delve more into, into that realm. Ruminants. <laughs> that's awesome. Ruminants are the best. They're so much fun. I I agree. So um, I'm curious, you've used the term a couple times now, and I meant to ask, and then we got distracted with other things, um, but you, you've said studio a couple times. Now, I have to tell you, I've, I've interviewed roughly 80 zookeepers all around the world, and I've never heard that term before. So what do you mean when you say studio? Because I'm a musician, and that means something very different in my world. Yeah, um, it might not be as different as you think. So studio training would just be any time you see a real animal in a movie, um, even though they tend to be moving more towards CGI, that I can tell the difference. And I think people always prefer to see a real animal in a movie. But um, studio work is just an animal that is trained to be on set, be in a scene, um, work on commercials or movies and, and that type of thing. Or, or stage, I guess. Should I be a show, show training more so than studio? But Gotcha. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, that, that does make sense. We um, Okay, I didn't realize that there was such a, a call for that. That's very cool. I, I will tell you that <laughs> that is very important. Um, there was one time that I did a uh, production of Annie, the musical. And for whatever reason, um, <laughs> the, the dog was not brought until the last minute. <laughs> and they did not have a dog that was trained for this. 
and it was a very large dog, and it was a very small Annie. And um, it did not go well in our dress rehearsal, uh, but then we had to open the next night. You know, the show must go on. And um, during the song Tomorrow, the most famous moment of the musical, (laughs) the dog was literally running. It had a handler on each side that had treats and stuff just in case anything went wrong. Back and forth across the stage, getting treat after treat. While Annie was dragged by the leash by this dog while singing tomorrow back and forth and back. And she never let go. So the entire song was her singing. The sun will come out as she goes around tomorrow across the entire stage. I was a good memory. Yeah. Oh, yes, it really does. So studio work is very important. Yeah, not supposed to be the comic relief scene of that um, production, but hey, it's enjoyable. Got the, got the intended result, I guess. The audience was captivated. Oh, the, the audience was captivated. And the way we were set up, I was like in front of the stage and I see the whole audience is laughing. And I'm like, so I'm turning around while playing the drums and looking and seeing this dog and I'm trying not to die and watch my conductor and watch the dog. And yeah, it was a, it's a good memory. So That's great. So what is your goal? What are you going to do with this this degree? Yeah, my goal is a little up in the air, but, um, well, that's not true at all. I know exactly what I want to do. I'm just not sure exactly how I'm going to get there. But um, as I mentioned a little earlier, I originally, well, in college, I went to school for early childhood education, um, child psychology, because my other passion is education and child development. and um, I would really like to homestead and have a small school of alternative learning that is basically like a miniature version of Edom that involves animal care for younger children, grades, you know, K through eight to start, hopefully eventually high school age as well. Um, I learned through some travels in my off time before going back to school at Edom, I learned of project-based learning, which is often employed in um, other countries like Japan, Costa Rica, Russia does a lot of this project-based learning where they take mixed age group uh, classes, basically, where it's different grade levels that work together on something that they care about. And the belief in the system is that through just focusing on a passion project, you can learn everything in all the subjects, but within a context of this larger project. So, um, My hope is to have a small facility with various animals, hopefully growing over time, that um, allows children to learn in a very hands-on way through growing the food, you know, building enclosures, taking care of the animals, and um, that sort of thing. So there might be some stepping stones in between, but I'm going to get there. (laughs) Wow. Very wow. Um... I've I've said this before. One of my favorite things on this podcast is when I ask a very like a, a question that I think has a very obvious answer. Like, oh, I want to be a zookeeper, and I, <laughs> you know, there there was a very obvious answer to that, and that was that was not it. And that's very cool. So, Thank how you. much uh, how much international travel have you done? Not very much. Um, I've been to Costa Rica twice, and that's about it. Um, oh, okay. When you were talking about yeah. travel and then all those places, I thought. Um, you're some, you know, crazy world traveler. Yeah, Leno, but so. I, I travel in, in books. I read a lot of books. You know, it's the next best thing. <laughs> same, same. Yeah, no, 100%. I love, I mean, education's a beautiful thing. Yeah. That is such a, 
a lofty and, and unique goal. I really dig it. That's very cool. Thank you. It's, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I believe that uh, if we focus on plan A and no plan B, then it is the only plan. And I just keep kind of moving in a direction and it doesn't always feel like it's completely linear, but then something magical and serendipitous will occur that makes me realize that I'm going the right way. So this was definitely one of those steps for me joining this program. Very cool. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I did the same thing with my, um, my music career and then have done it again with Ross Safari. And, um, uh, it's amazing what you can build if you just set your sights on it and, and do it and don't take no for an answer. Yeah. But you're right. The path never seems linear. It never seems right. It's um, windy. Yeah, it is. And I'm constantly amazed. Like I can track in my music career, uh, getting from an amateur player to a touring drummer in like four moves. But there were thousands of moves to get those four moves in. You know what I mean? Um, but it was literally like, if you look at just the steps I took, it was just this person, this person, this person. I'm on tour. And yet yes. it, it, it took years of work and figuring it all out and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's very yeah. cool. Yeah, that's the hero's journey. That's, you know, that's the, the arc of the character is all these little happenings and then something pivotal that you never saw coming. And then all of a sudden... You're that you're that much closer. So, absolutely, I love it. Um, cool. I am. I'm. I'm so fascinated by this. Um, where Where would you want to have this kind of place? This This school. I'm actually about to. Pretty much as soon as I graduate, I am moving to um, the Texarkana region. Not sure exactly where yet, um, but just based off of the um, the ease of animal and land ownership and affordability of it in that area and the need I feel like too uh, just a lot of things converged on that area for me so um, I'll be going there pretty soon and I'm a California native so it's going to be a big change but I'm ready for oh, it oh yeah I know the area that's a that's a huge that's that's as far away from, from Hollywood as you can get yeah. yeah my time here has been great 10 years in, in Hollywood is plenty so <laughs> I'm ready for that <laughs> Very cool. That's awesome. What uh, can we? Can I keep asking about this? I know Please. that's not really the yeah, original purpose, no. but I'm I'm fascinated. Whatever you like. So how how would you want to start this? Like, tell me what your initial batch of animals would be if you could just you know make this all happen exactly how you want to. And we all know that's never how the world works. No, but my my <laughs> general plan. Um, I would like to start with falconry because even though that's not a direct line, it's something I'm passionate about and. Um, always loved birds of prey, but being in this program, being assigned to a couple hawks, um, it really confirmed that that's what I want to do. It's, it's amazing. Cause kind of like we were talking about earlier with relationships, it's a very much professional relationship when you're working with a bird of prey, they're never gonna snuggle you and, you know, sleep in your bed with you and cuddle up, but, um, it, but it works. And I would like to learn that art because it's also very self-sufficient. You know, you build everything yourself, including the mew that they live in, the equipment that they wear, the dresses, um, and it'll help me build some constitution with as far as like, you know, you'll have to dispatch a few animals and things that I'm not really that comfortable with, but are going to be important in this field. So I want to just continue challenging myself and building that, that constitution. And then um, my as this is going on, as I'm learning this practice and apprenticing, since it's a two-year apprentice, 
apprenticeship to become a falconer, um, I would like to mostly start with probably reptiles um, because they are easy to travel with and um, need kind of less space than larger animals, mammals, and things. So um, the hope is to do kind of like a traveling birthday party type situation to build clout in the neighborhood and, um, you know, just start kind of making that name of, hey, I'm the new, the new animal person in town. Um, check out all my scaly friends. So <laughs> I think I'll start with some reptiles and, of course, some um, homesteading is part of the goal, too. So some goats and things, that chickens, obviously, the farm, typical farm friends. Cool. So that's awesome. And I'm super excited about everything that you just said. And I wish you all the luck in making this happen. Thank you. And you are cool. You're clearly very cool. But enough about you. Tell me more animal stories. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Give me, what are you looking for? Give me something to go off of. I have so many, even in the short time. Just, just pick, pick a species and tell me like I am. Okay. So I came into this purposely, like, I don't know this zoo and I want you to introduce me to the zoo. So I am, I did not look it up. I did not. Sometimes I go down that road, but when you and I were talking, you seemed personable enough and smart enough that I was just like, I will not need to lead. So lead me somewhere. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, um, I've spoken about him already, but he's the first that comes to mind because I know, I know animals. I'm not a parent yet, but I'm sure working with animals is somewhat like having kids where whichever one you're working with at the time or hanging out with at the time is your favorite, but no one ever knows who the real favorite is. But um, Beaker is my favorite. Don't tell anyone else all the other animals <laughs> I said that. But um I formed such a bond with him, and I think it's so funny because it really speaks to the um, how the highest highs can beget the lowest lows and vice versa because he's also who I've had the most um, aggressive altercations with him to me, not the reverse. But um, <laughs> I'm glad you're not assaulting your animals. <laughs> <laughs> no, positive reinforcement only. Um but it's interesting how positive reinforcement can be used to prune, prune out those aggressive behaviors that you don't want. Um, and in the beginning, you know, my relationship with, with him, I was timid around him, not because there had been any aggression yet, just because, you know, this is very brand new. Um, and my staff mentor, mentor, who I mentioned earlier, Gary Moy, um, has given me so much great advice. I can't even quantify it. He's really an incredible human being. Um, but at the end of a session that would go kind of awry, he would say, okay, well, did your animal get away? No. Did anybody die? No. Okay, then it was a good session. You know, it doesn't matter that he wandered off. It doesn't matter that it didn't go the way you planned. It's never going to go the way you planned because this animal is (laughs) its own being. But um, when we first, when my team and I, it's a team of four, um, that we weren't necessarily best buds when we began. you know, it was new. We didn't know each other. We've now become just this tight knit quadrant of people that have just found a way to work together for the animal. And that's what I love so much about this field is that you're uniting over something that you may have differences in your world outside, but there's this central focus. I know I'm really going off on a tangent here, but um, no, I love made, it. I love it. <laughs> we have made so much progress with him just by communicating and trying different things and all being on the same page. And he has gone from being a um, very unpredictable, you know, he would not stay in the same place for more than two seconds, bouncing off the walls. And now he is going to 
Um, he's flying over live audiences in the shows, and very rarely does a ground horn bill have the confidence in the relationship with the trainer to be able to be trusted over over top of a bunch of strangers. So he's in a show tomorrow. I'm really hoping to get to do that. Um, but it's just been really incredible. He used to have just, you know, a few little places that he could go and train because he was really unpredictable. So hmm, can he be walked freely around other people and things? And now he can just be anywhere. And um, that, I don't know, that to me just speaks to the the power of this program and the expertise of the staff we're working with. And, um, you know, as we spoke about hornbills earlier, they are a very unpredictable uh, family of birds. They range from the ground hornbill, which there are only two species, the northern and the southern, or the northern is the Abyssinian, which is the type that I work with, but then to toucans and vonderdeckens and the tree hornbills that maybe are more um, familiar to people, but all of which tend to have that kind of attitude to anthropomorphize. So um, he's definitely one of the most unique animals that I've gotten to work with. So tell me about your team. I'm curious. Um, the uh, You said there are four of you. Like yeah. I'm talking about this close-knit team, right? So tell me about y- your team and how you guys became a team and, and what it was like. And, and, you know, give me some dirty laundry. Not really. But, you know, yeah. tell me what it was like to become a team. Well, that's part of the fun of the program is, um, you know, we're all choosing these animals based on, you know, maybe we had backed up for our second years, which is like, we have this protocol um, to kind of get used to being in the field and that we're still in school that anytime you go in with an animal, you have to have a backup. So as a first year, when you don't have animals of your own, but you're about to choose some to work with the next year, you back up for your second years who then can tell you about the animal. You can watch the session. That's kind of how you you begin to choose. Um, So we develop affinities for certain animals, we get our assignments, and then we're just assigned with other people in our class, whether we were friends or not, or knew each other well or not. Um, and then that's that's your team. And it's great because you've mentioned some of your episodes before that animal people aren't always people people. And the way this program is designed is so that you realize you have to be both in some respect. Uh, the animals are what bring you there, but the people are who you're going to reach out to to protect your animal or their home environment um, out in the world. It's, you know, it's up to every individual, whether they love animals or not, to conserve the world that they come from. So um, we got really lucky with our Beaker team. Um, and it's really just about the communication. It all started with, he had a history, we were told by our second years who turned us over, of choosing a mate um, because he's an he's an imprint, which basically means he was raised by people, very confident around people, um, and this he had this history of choosing one of his trainers to be his mate, and then obviously not literally, but uh, then that <laughs> thank you for person, clarifying. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I realize the finger quotes aren't going to translate to an audio only, so. Uh, <laughs> um, and then that person would have a harder time working with him because. To him, that relationship was on different um, rules, a different set of rules than with his other trainers. So we just decided early on, none of us are going to let that happen. And we didn't know how we were going to do it, but um, we figured out how to make that work. And it was by 
Nobody did anything different, basically, from anybody else. The terms were always very clear. We worked together pretty much every session, or at least whenever possible. Um, and then pretty soon he was out of his mating season in which he would be more sensitive to that. And then by that time, we all had a pretty strong relationship and were able to just keep up with that. And since then, his progress has been really astronomical. And now we're at that bittersweet time of year where we're, uh, we just found out who the new team is going to be um, next year when we graduate. So uh, we've been starting to encourage them to come to all his training sessions and um, learn how we did it. We're like, don't let him choose you. It'll be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, really cool. <laughs> what else? Uh, what other animals are you taking care of right now? Uh, right now, I am on my two other year-long animals are uh, the llama. Her name is Valentina. She is the complete opposite of Beaker, besides in color. Um, she is so timid, and every day is different. Her her rules are different every day. One day, she's very tactile and wants to be pet, and the other day, she's metaphorically raising an eyebrow and backing up at me like, hmm, I, I know I took food from you yesterday, but today I'm not so sure. Um, and it's always funny to try to figure out what an animal is thinking because we don't really know, you know, how they think. There's something going, there's processes going on in there, but, um, you know, I'll be like, okay, what is it? Is it that I fed a carnivore earlier and I didn't wash my hands good enough? Can she still smell that? Like, why, why today? is it so much different than yesterday so um she's been really fun because I have her for what's called spring spectacular which is our big event in the springtime where um it's a show with an actual story so every weekend we do animal shows where it's informative and and fun and it's random animals but this is our one show a year where it's scripted from beginning to end and the animals have parts in the show where they contribute to the overall plot so our theme this year is Zudanit, which is like a mystery. And so uh, Valentina will be investigating the crime scene. Um, so I've been desensitizing her to a magnifying glass, um, <laughs> which is really funny because she will see herself in it and get um, <laughs> and get nervous. So every day she gets just a little bit closer. Um, we use a lot of target training, which is like, for anyone at home that has a dog, target train them because it is like the, the foundation of any training. Um, it's basically just an object or better yet, your fist that um, the dog or animal makes contact with and then that they get reinforced for that. So um, that helps reposition an animal or, um, you know, on, on their of their own volition. So target training is step one in training an animal, at least as we are taught, and it, and it works. So um, Val is very well target trained, but the magnifying glass kind of changes that up a little bit. So she'll target to it, but then see herself and, ah, my eyes look big. I don't know what she's thinking. <laughs> this is scary. So um, we're working on that, but that's going to be her big part in the Spring Spectacular. She's going to investigate the crime scene through a giant, it's like a six-inch magnifying glass. <laughs> If you get any footage of that, I, w I would like to see Absolutely. it very much, please. Yes. <laughs> That's She's going to do great. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, yeah. My other year-long animal um, is a squirrel monkey. And um, this is not the exclusive reason I chose her, but her name is Holly. 
just like Aww, mine. So how sweet. Um, yeah, that did draw me to her a little bit, but also just um, personality wise, I felt like I'd be a good mesh with her. Um, so she is also an imprint. Um, she was hand reared, which is interesting with a primate because they're they have so many, for lack of a better word, rules, and they're not always the same as ours. Um, so. For example, primates don't really understand give very much. They understand take. So when we are around primates, any primates on the zoo, we cannot hand anything to each other because they're always watching. And to them, they could be forming the dominance hierarchy in their mind and act differently with their trainer or with whoever's cleaning them that day based on if they've seen, you know, tools or food items or anything passed around between students that could change their perception of our place in the hierarchy. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Same with like big smiles or loud noises because one of the main threats of a lot of primates is showing their teeth, which to us is kind of a pleasant greeting of like, hey, I'm smiling at you, but to them it can look very much like a threat. So um, yeah, the rules... Now that's not as much of an issue with the face coverings, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the Holly, the squirrel so, monkey, she's so what are you working a firecracker. On Holly? Holly actually, hmm, I think, I think this is okay to say it's, this is brand, brand new, but, um, um, we are about to get in a few new squirrel monkeys. So, uh, but one of them is very young and so. They figure it will be safe to try to give her an enclosure mate. So um, right now what I'm doing with her is very up in the air. Um, we just started recreate training her to be able to, because they can't live together right away just in case, um, especially because he's very young. So we will be um, slowly introducing them and seeing if it's going to work out. And that could be really exciting because if a lot of times if a, um, a protected contact primate lives with a free contact primate. It can completely overhaul their receptivity to people in their space. Um, so right now she hasn't, you know, it's kind of hard because we turn over every year and primates are very relationship based. So she hasn't had very many human trainers able to actually go in and physically interact with her. Um, because by the time the trainer almost gets to that point, it's time to turn over. Um, so, of course, the primates do have staff members that have long-standing relationships with them. So it's not like they're just lacking this element. Right, um, right. It's just that the the people that feed and train every day change over time. But the, the staff is consistent. So they have and, – and their neighbors are consistent. So they have a social um, group with the primates and enclosures nearby. Um, it's just not a physical relationship. Sure, sure. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Cool. Yeah, well, that's so very we'll exciting. See. Yay! Very cool. Very cool. Um, and then uh, the the last two things are: I'm going to open up the floor to you, to anyone or any conservation organization or anything you would like to give a shout out to or educate people about. Yeah, I um, I have a few actually. So. The um, American Association of Zookeepers, you don't have to be a zookeeper to join, but they're always doing local conservation events. You don't even have to be a member of the group necessarily. Of course, things have changed a little bit now, but as things start opening up again, um, pay attention to that. They do things like bowling for rhinos and all these little events where 
Um, you just do what you're going to do anyway. Go out, go bowling, go get food at a certain place. But if you go on that day and mention the association, then part of the proceeds will go to whatever the chosen conservation, um, you know, message of that day is. So um, bowling for rhinos is a lot of fun. I yeah. have, I've done it from the Philly AAZK. That's actually where this photo came from. All of my other photos in my house are my own ones, but this is of a red panda, uh, May, who kind of made me fall in love with red pandas. Oh. And I won it at a raffle at bowling for rhinos. Very so, cool. Yeah. Good times. Good times. And then the other one I wanted to mention, actually, because the um, the staff member that I mentioned earlier that's been very involved in um, just animal behavior pretty much throughout his whole life is very involved in, um, I'm trying to look in real quick at when their event is, the Animal Behavior Management Alliance, ABMA, they have an, a virtual conference. It's usually in person every year, but um, this year it'll be virtual, and it is April 29th through May 1st, and there will be people from all over just talking about animal behavior and operant conditioning. Um, there might even be some, there will definitely probably be some Edom alumni there, but maybe even a little segment from current students. So that would be very cool um, nice. as well. So that's really exciting. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, those two are the main ones. Anyone in the Escondido or San Diego area as well, there's a pretty small facility there that does really great um, kind of up close and personal things. And I know that with everything being shut down, um, it's been harder for small facilities to really stay afloat. So I had the pleasure of doing a week-long internship at um, Avian Behavior International, which is pretty close to the safari park. Um, I really encourage people to look them up because – Hillary Hankey, the one of the heads of the facility there, just does really amazing work with her birds. And um, I appreciated getting to learn from her. So anyone in the Escondido or San Diego area should look them up and look at some trainer for a day experiences and get really up close looks with some of those birds there. Oh, that's really cool. I, yeah. I, I did not know that because every time I'm in the Escondido area, I'm obviously going to the Safari Park. The safari Park, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. I'll have to check that out next time I'm out there. I love that whole area. Yeah, there's so, so much good. hiding up there in those hills that didn't even know they were there either until I had the pleasure of getting to spend some time. So very cool. attention to the little guys. <laughs> love it. Love it. And now I actually did think when you said in the Escondido area, there's a small thing. I was like, is that a joke? Are you going to say the safari park? The safari park? No. <laughs> People know about the, the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, but okay. Okay. So, so the, <laughs> the frequent flyer show there, I have to say, is that's like the first show as a child that I went to and I was like, I have to do this. Um, and then I found out this past year that the um, woman who started it was an Edom alum that was a classmate of my staff mentor. So um, that was kind of a cool full circle thing. Just seeing the secretary bird in that show as a kid, I was like, this is amazing. And the secretary bird has been my favorite animal ever since. So Nice. I do not blame <laughs> you. They are an amazing bird. Um, and now it is time for the Rasafari poop story. All right. Um, well... This is pretty recent. It has to do with the hyena. Um, and I mentioned earlier that um, this program builds constitution in ways you would never really expect. So every new animal that we have goes through a quarantine period just to make sure that they're not, um, you know, exchanging anything that they might have brought in from their last home. And um, that involves doing fecal samples where they get sent into a lab. But um, hyena scat, for those who don't know, is very um, texturally dense. 
and not very easy to fit into a very small one-size-fits-all specimen tube with a tiny little plastic spoon that you're supposed to use to like pick up a little piece but doesn't really work with rock hard you know hyena feces so um I just kind of went for it I did have a glove on I will say but I reached in he was over there eating I was very safe I reached my fingers in a little bit and just pulled it through broke it up into pieces and stuffed it in that jar and submitted it for uh review so I was like this you know it was not not pleasant but I would do it again for him in a second so <laughs> the first of I'm sure many times that you will be handling poop first and you probably of many, shouldn't be <laughs> first of many times so I'm sure people with a, a lot of zookeeping um under their belt have had much more close and personal stories than that but for me that was a that was a turning point in life of like okay I'm okay with this now <laughs> Amazing. This is a reality. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. This is fun. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This has been really fun. I love talking about this um, this little five-acre homeland in Moore Park that I, I've grown to love so much. So cool. Yay, Edom. <laughs> so remember, kids, if you want to start doing small reptile birthday shows while also learning falconry in Texarkana... You can go to uh, America's Teaching Zoo at Moore Park Community College. Okay, seriously, though, how cool was that interview? Holly's whole vision for her future and also just knowing that America's Teaching Zoo is there and raising up a whole class of well-trained, well-educated zookeepers and conservationists and animal handlers. I love it. It just, it just makes me really happy. I, I love thinking about that. You can learn more about the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program at uh, America's Teaching Zoo by visiting moreparkcollege.edu. And you can also check them out on Instagram at America's Teaching Zoo. As for me, I'm going to sit back and listen to those lovely, lovely Stider. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.